You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. teaching text is from John chapter 21 verses 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, "'Friends, haven't you any fish?' "'No,' they answered. He said, "'Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some.' When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, "'It is the Lord.' As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, "'It is the Lord,' he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards.' When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even so, with many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thank you, Gretchen. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have given us. We, I know that it's active and it's living. And we just ask right now that Holy Spirit that you would illuminate it. That you would drive it into our hearts. That you would use this time to encourage us, to build us up, to conform us more in the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. For years, I have been haunted by a fear of failure. I remember as a child playing the game of baseball. It was a game that I loved and I was actually pretty good at. In fact, in my last full season of baseball, I won the most valuable player of the league award my 12-year-old year. The next year, I went on to be the number one pick in the uh, 13 to 15-year-old Major Babe Ruth baseball draft. And so I was a kid uh, full of passion, full of potential, but my career was short-lived. I'll never forget my last game. I was 13 years old, and it was uh, the last inning. Our team was down by one. Bases were loaded, and I came up to the plate. My team was cheering me on. Uh, the parents in our section was cheering me on. All I needed to do was get one hit, and we could win the game. But instead of getting the victory, I took strike three right down the middle, and we lost the game. And I remember, you know, my, my, my teammates didn't have to say anything. The look on their faces kind of said it all. Um, I had failed them whenever they needed me the most. I had disappointed them. I had let them down. And as a result, despite the fact that on the way home, my dad really tried to kind of build me up and focus on the positive, I still felt dejected and humiliated. And I made a pack right then and there that I would never strike out in the game of baseball again. And so as a result, I decided to quit as a 13-year-old. 
And, you know, I wish I could say that as an adult, this fear of failure is uh, something that I no longer strong, uh, struggle with, that it's completely gone away. But the truth is, what will keep me awake at night more than anything else is this fear that I have that somehow I'm going to blow it, um, that I'm not going to live up to expectations, that I'm not going to be able to uh, do whatever it is I need to do as a husband or a father or a pastor. And so as a result, what it can drive me to do is live with this kind of hopeless perfectionism, always working, always trying to be better than I currently am out of this fear that one day I'm going to face the same kind of tragedy I did that night under the lights at Bland Park in 1996. And maybe some of you can relate to this. Um, Because of your own fear of failure, you can either A, uh, never get the appropriate rest, or B, Uh, Equally as damaging, never take the appropriate risk. Um, Some of you, because you have been taught failure is not an option, you either pursue this hopeless perfectionism until you burn out, or you play it safe and as a result end up being bored out of your mind. So there's burnout and there is boredom. And if that is where you are this morning, the good news of the gospel is that the risen Jesus actually wants to free us from our fear of failure, to replace boredom and burnout with blessings so that when we fail, not if we fail, but when we fail, rather than remain stuck in this pit of condemnation, we can begin to grow in a garden of grace. With that, I want you to look back with me. John 21 Verse 1 of our story, it says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Um, For those of you taking note, this is the same sea that Jesus appeared to his disciples when he first called them in Luke chapter 5. Um, as the story goes, Peter and the disciples are struggling to catch fish on this particular day. Jesus shows up. Uh, they didn't know who he was at the time, but he tells them, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. For whatever reason, they listen to this man they had not met, and they catch so many fish, the boat begins to sink. Now, they're blown away by this miraculous catch, and as a result, they drop their nets, and they leave behind their comforts and their careers, and they choose to follow Jesus into the unknown. Fast forward three years later, Here we are in John 21, and the disciples are back on the same sea. And to their knowledge, Jesus, this one they had put their hope in, is in the grave. He is dead, and therefore, because their hope has been buried with the Messiah, think about this, they have gone back to doing what they have always done before they ever met Jesus. Like many of us are tempted to do whenever Jesus lets us down. These disciples go back to their old patterns, their old way of living that to them feels safe and comfortable and familiar. And it's right here the risen Jesus shows up. And here's what happens, verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which is probably why he went by Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. Verse 3, I'm going to fish, Simon Peter told them. They said, uh, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. It's a really good thing that these men actually all became preachers because they were really bad fishermen. I don't know if you ever noticed that in the scripture. We only have two instances in all of the Bible of them actively fishing and they never could catch anything apart from Jesus. So they're out fishing can't catch anything. Verse four, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. So just like on the road to Emmaus, those disciples don't recognize Jesus. These guys don't recognize Jesus. 
And I just want to say, like, there are times where he can even walk into our own midst and we don't recognize Jesus. Times where because he shows up in a fresh way or a new way, he's not quite showing up the way he has in the past, we can miss his very presence. That's what's happening right here in this story. In verse 5, he calls out to them, friends, pay attention to that word, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And so he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. So in case you missed it, this is the same miracle, the same sea, same beach that Jesus performed in Luke chapter 5 to prove to his disciples that he is the Lord. Verse 7, when the disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, that's John, um, who's calling himself that. He writes the book of John. He's like, what should I call myself? I will call myself the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, he said, it is the Lord. And so he wrapped his outer garment around him. Most people take their clothes off before they jumped in. He put his clothes on for he had taken it off and he jumps into the water. Now, a lot of people will romanticize this moment and say, wow, look how much Simon Peter must have loved Jesus. He was actually willing to jump into the water and swim because he felt he could get there faster than if they rowed the boat. And that's a possibility. But I think a far more likely possibility is that Peter just wants to beat the disciples to Jesus so that he can explain to Jesus why he had just denied him three times just a few nights earlier. You might remember this story in John 18 where Peter himself, he's warming himself by a charcoal fire, which is important. We'll come back to that detail in a minute. But he's warming himself by the fire. And think about this. All because of the social pressure of a teenage girl he denies any association with Jesus. He then, on a second occasion, is sitting there warming his fire by the same charcoal fire. Someone comes up and says, hey, don't you know Jesus? And he, again, denies Jesus. A third time, he's sitting there warming his hands by the charcoal fire, and someone comes up, someone who was actually there the night that Jesus was arrested, and they're like, hey, aren't you the guy who cut off someone else's ear that night? Peter curses offensively and then denies for a third time any association with Jesus. In Luke twenty two sixty, it says that at this moment, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows the day, you will disown me three times. And so Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. See, Peter had counted the cost. In Matthew 22, before Jesus was crucified, he said to Jesus, even if everybody else walks away, I'll die with you. But when the pressure was on, and here's the thing about pressure, when you're faced with pressure, what's really inside of you is going to come out. And so when Peter is pushed on, when the crisis hit, the truth of what is in Peter's heart comes out. And rather than dying with Jesus, he denies Jesus. And imagine in that moment being Peter, and I would think the words that Jesus spoke in Luke 9, 62 would come through his mind where Jesus looked at Peter earlier and said, no one who puts his hand to a plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. If that's not looking back, Peter must have been thinking, then what is? I mean, I just denied the Messiah when he needed me the most and I did it not once, not twice, but three times. I cannot possibly be fit for the kingdom of God anymore. So this is a devastating moment of failure in Peter's life. It is a moment when Peter realizes that who he wants to be and who he actually is does not match up. And so when the risen Jesus shows up on the beach, I believe the reason that Peter jumps into the water is not because he just is so in love with Jesus. I think he just has some explaining to do. 
I think that he wants to beat the disciples there so Jesus can hear from him personally. Here's my side of the story. Here's what actually happened. This is why I actually denied you these three times. And I bet that what Peter actually is wanting to do here is try in some way to work his way back into a right relationship with God. And this is what we see happen in verse 8. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 meters. And when they landed, they saw, look at this, a fire of burning coals, or in the ESV, it's a charcoal fire, there with fish on it and some bread. There are only two places in all of the Bible that we see a charcoal fire. When Peter denies Jesus, and then when Peter shows up here to the risen Jesus. And this is significant because a charcoal fire is one of the most distinct smells on the planet. I went with my youngest son to Lowe's yesterday, and we could smell the charcoal immediately like we went to summertime. And that is because, as psychologists point out, of all of the senses, smell is the one that is most directly connected to your memory. And that is why, for example, the other day, whenever I'm walking with Chris, uh, we're doing a little uh, direct report meeting, and we're like, instead of sitting in the office, it's pretty, let's go walk. I smell freshly paved pavement, and immediately I'm filled with joy because my mind goes back to when I played street hockey as a teenager. But he smells the same freshly paved parking lot and feels sorrow and anger because he said, I remember how my car used to always break down, and I would be maybe stranded on the side of a road. So two different emotional responses to the exact same smell. Why is that? Because smell, more than anything else, psychologically speaking, has a way of pulling us back into a memory for better or for worse. And so when Peter smells a charcoal fire, where do you think his mind would have went? See, I think it would have went to that night. To the night where he denied Jesus three times. And as a result, I imagine in this story, Peter is experiencing shame and guilt and fear. What is Jesus going to do next? In verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some fish that you have just caught. So, verse 11, Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 to be exact. But even with so many in the net, it was not torn. Here's a question that I thought about this week. Why didn't the disciples help Peter? Like, why did Peter go by himself to drag this net that apparently was so heavy that just moments earlier, it took seven of them to get it up out of the water into the boat. Is it that the disciples were lazy? Were they distracted? I mean, what was going on here? Well, my guess is just this. This, The the passage doesn't say this. I just think this is where Peter was in the moment. I think they probably offered to help. And he said, no, 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 I got it. I I got it. Let me do this on my own. I, I think that Peter was trying to be a hero here. I think that he was still trying to prove in this moment to Jesus, hey, this is who I really am. I'm a committed disciple. I'm more devoted than these guys. I'm more hardworking than these guys. Like, I can do it, Jesus. Hey, you guys just just chill there. Let me handle all the work. I think in some way by trying to drag the net with the fish to the fire, he's still trying to in some way atone for his sins. And I can so relate to this times in my own life where I feel like a failure, where I feel like I failed God. And and because of my own sin, I can think, man, I've got to prove to God I really am serious. And so I'm going to go share my faith today. Next person I meet, next thing that moves, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm going to read my Bible a little extra longer. I'm going to pray a little bit more and just prove to God how much I really do love him. 
This is exactly what Peter is doing here because of his shame and his fear over what he's done because he believes I'm no longer fit for service in the kingdom of God. I've got to prove to God that's actually not true. I've got to show God how he should be happy that he chose me to be one of his disciples. He's trying to earn his way, I believe, back into favor with Jesus. And so he drags this net to where Jesus is and as he stands there now with the disciples around this charcoal fire, Jesus begins to speak. And here is what he says to Peter and these disciples. Verse 12, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. A very simple and yet extraordinary invitation that Jesus extends not only to these disciples, but to you and me today. And this is an invitation that he offers that, listen, if you will take to heart, it will help free you from the fear of failure. And the first thing that we see, there's two things in here. The first thing that we see that that Jesus offers in this breakfast is whenever he offers us to come and have breakfast, we need to understand today that this is a breakfast of one generous forgiveness. You see, these disciples, remember, they had rejected Jesus. They had abandoned Jesus, denied Jesus whenever he needed him the most. But rather than God holding their sins against them in a beautiful expression of grace, he says, come and have breakfast. That is not what Jared Pitney would have said. If I would have just saw these guys for the first time after conquering, you know, the grave, I would have been like, man, I just died for you. I just laid it all on the line for you. Like I was fully committed to you. Like I even washed your stinky feet. Like I, I laid down my whole life for you and this is how you repay me. I would not have said, come have breakfast. I said, how about you make me breakfast? And because it's new covenant, like let's throw some pork in there, a little bacon, a little sausage. That's what I would have done. But that's not what Jesus does here. He doesn't say, hey, how about you guys now serve me? How about y'all make me breakfast? But instead, he says, I am going to make breakfast on my tab. He doesn't even use the fish they caught. They already have fish there that he provides. And in doing so, this is such a great reminder to you and me today that our forgiveness is something that we cannot earn. But forgiveness and the love of God is given to us by God as a free or as free as this very meal that he prepares. And if you are anything like me, listen, this is a truth that is hard to wrap our minds around logically, but it's even harder to know on a personal level. It's so easy, isn't it, to know today, because you've heard this, guys. How many church services have some of you sit in and heard this, that you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven? We know this logically, but because of the things that we have done or have not done, it is so hard to believe this experientially. You see, if I was one of these disciples and Jesus invited me to have breakfast with him, I would think there's got to be a catch. You ever had one of those lunches where someone's like, hey, let's go to this meeting. Like, hey, I want to hang out with you. And then you get there and you realize, like, actually they have an agenda. And there's something they want to tell you that you've done or, or they want to break some bad news. Like, like that's what I would be thinking with, with what's, what's going on here. And I think that's the way some of us view God. Is we think, I mean, God would never invite me to have a meal with him. But if he did, there's going to be an agenda. Like he's going to break some bad news to me or he is going to in some way tell me how I've not measured up or I have failed. And I think that's because for most of us who have grown up in the religious South, we view God much more like a celestial police officer than we do a loving father. And so rather than seeing God as the father in Jesus' prodigal and the son uh, story where the prodigal son comes running home and the dad sits there with open arms, rather than viewing God that way, we see him as a police officer who's just kind of following us around, waiting for us to mess up so then he can hit the sirens, give us a ticket, or throw us into prison for all eternity. 
And therefore, as a result, I think many of us live with kind of this he loves me, he loves me not kind of relationship. And so, all right, I read my Bible today, he loves me, and he's going to bless me. Good things are going to come now because I did good things for God. Ah, I didn't read my Bible today. He doesn't love me. Ooh, I better watch out. Like something's coming. Like my kid's going to get sick. Like my boss is going to let me go. Like something like that. Like, oh, I prayed today. Like he loves me. I'm going to get favor. I forgot to pray today. Like clearly, like, man, like it's going to hit the fan. Right? Like bad thing. Like I am going to be punished by God. That is the way some of us view God. But here's the thing. Though, though the world may work this way, it is not the way that God works. Because of what Jesus has accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, you can be forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means is no matter who you are or what you have done or have not done, you can now, if you've trusted in Jesus, stand before God holy and blameless and accepted. And this is all a free gift from God to anyone who will simply receive it with the empty hands of faith. And so this breakfast is a breakfast of generous forgiveness. Secondly, and finally, it is a breakfast of gracious friendship. You know, Jesus could have said on this day, hey, I know you guys feel bad about what you've done. You've sinned, but hey, here's good news. I forgive you. But then he could have went on somewhere else. I've got a lot to do. You are forgiven. No hard feelings. And then he could have left. And that would have been nice. But notice in here, Jesus does not do that. Instead, he sits down and he has a meal with his disciples. And in doing so, the risen Jesus shows us that we have a God who does not simply forgive sins, but a God who also befriends sinners. A God who imparts forgiveness, and that's huge, but he also prioritizes friendship. And this is so important to get because, guys, listen, this is the essence of Christian life. If there's nothing else that you ever take away from my life or my ministry here at the cross, and I hope it's that, that this is the essence of Christian life. It is friendship with God. It is communion with God. It's not going to heaven when you die. It's fellowship with the creator of the universe right now who is the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. How amazing is it to think about in this story that after Jesus conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell, of all the things he could have chosen to do, he sits down and has a meal with his disciples. And my guess is, the text don't say this, but my guess is he had a smile on his face. My guess is he was lighthearted and joyful and playful and excited to be with these guys. And as I've meditated on that all week and this reality that we have a God who wants to have a meal with us, and wants to fellowship with us, and is excited to be with us. I have been thinking this week about the difference between dogs and cats. And let me just say this real fast, because I know we have some cat lovers in here. Um, You are welcome to this church, okay? (laughs) This illustration that I'm about to share with you is not an anti-cat illustration. just want to prepare your hearts. It's just more of a pro-dog illustration. I started thinking about this past week, how dogs are like God, which is probably why dog spelled backwards is God. Very good. Um, here's the thing about a dog. If you've been gone and you walk into the house, your dog is actually happy to see you. It's wagging its tail. It's like shaking its body. My dog, I'll be honest, is probably more happy to see me than even my own family is happy to see me at times. The dog is almost smiling. Like it's greeting me at the door. And here's what's crazy. I could then, if I forget something in my truck, go back outside, 
30 seconds later, walk back in, and it's the exact same thing. <laughs> it's wagging his tail and smiling. This is amazing. Like, this makes me feel so special. Like, my dog loves me. Cats aren't like that. They're not. The thing about a cat is you could be gone for four months and you could walk into your house and let me show you a picture of how your cat will greet you at the door. That's the truth. Just like this. Oh, look who's back. Are you going to feed me? When you think of God, how does he respond whenever he sees you? Is he excited? Is he happy? Is he joyful and playful? Or is he more like the cat? Oh, it's you again. So many of us have this view of God that he just tolerates us. That he just puts up with us because he has to. And yet Jesus, the risen Jesus, offers a different vision. A vision of a God who is not indifferent towards us. A God who actually longs for communion, who longs for friendship. This is why Jesus, before he was arrested and crucified, he looked at his disciples and he said, I no longer call you servants, but I now call you my friends. What a staggering reality. That the God of the universe longs to be friends with you. Think about it like this. Imagine someone that you idolize that you really look up to, some celebrity maybe, uh, Steph Curry or John Morant, Taylor Swift, Elon Musk, I don't know who it may be for you, but someone you're like, oh, I would love to meet this person. And then imagine you get a chance to meet them and maybe you get a picture with them, that would be cool. You get an autograph, that would be really cool. It's probably going on social media or send it to your family and your friends. That would be cool in itself. But then imagine a week later you get a phone call and it's that person you idolize. Somehow they tracked you down. And they say, hey, I, I just wanted to reach out and see if you wanted to hang out again. You'd be like, what? Is this a prank? No, 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 this is, you know. And then imagine you can hang out. And then imagine maybe like a week later, you're at the grocery store. You're, you're eating out somewhere. And they show up and they're like, ah, oh, there you are. I've been looking for you. Can we hang out? You'd be like, like shouldn't this be reversed? <laughs> shouldn't I be the one like stalking you, pursuing you, wanting to hang out with you? And yet what's incredible to me is the God who created the person you idolize is doing that right now. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who created all of this stuff longs to be in communion with you even in the most ordinary, non-glamorous places of your life. We've all had those friends, right? It's like, I'll hang out when it's really cool or it's really big or it's really epic. That's not the way God is. Changing diapers, cleaning house, fixing a meal, shopping, working. He will continue to pursue you with excitement and joy and playfulness. And when doing so, he will extend to you a generous forgiveness and a gracious friendship. With all that being said, here's the kind of the big takeaway um, before we dismiss this morning. What we learn from John 21 is this wonderful reality that your failures cannot separate you from the love of God. That no matter what you have done or have not done, no matter how big your failure or deep your shame, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And just to drive this point home, look what Jesus does for Peter 
in John 21, verse 15 through 17. We didn't read earlier, but I want to read and then we'll close here. I imagine Jesus is picking up on Peter's shame. He's picking up on his guilt, picking up on his fear. He knows how hard he's working to prove himself. And so he pulls him aside, not to shame him even more, not to beat him down. But after they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's a debate about which one is these. Is it the disciples he's talking about when he says these? Or is it the fish? doesn't really matter. I think it's the fish, but it's not that really important of a detail. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And so Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three denials around a charcoal fire met with three questions around a charcoal fire. And in doing so, Jesus intentionally creates in a single scene Peter's most heartbreaking moment from his life. Not for the purpose of shaming him, but for the purpose of reinstating him. That is why if you notice after each question, what does Jesus do to Peter? He commissions him. He commissions Peter. He says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And in doing so, what he's saying to Peter and what he's saying to you is despite your failures, I am not done with you. Despite all your failures and flaws, he says to Peter, I see that you are still the rock. You're still the one in which I want to build the church. And listen, guys, this should tell you everything you need to know about the heart of God. That rather than kicking you when you're down, which is what society wants to do, Jesus meets you where you are and he redeems and he repurposes even the most broken part of your stories. See, Peter, like I'm guessing most of you in the room who are good church people, Peter had always believed in the grace of God. Tell me something I don't know. I mean, he had seen the grace of God on full display. He'd even helped share the grace of God when he partnered with Jesus in ministry. But it was only right here in the midst of his own shame in his darkest hour that Peter went from believing in the grace of God on a logical level to knowing the grace of God in a personal and powerful way. And Peter would go on, by the way, to have some great highlights. He would be a phenomenal preacher, an unshakable leader, a brave warrior. But think about this. Peter's lasting legacy is not his competence, but it's in God's grace. This is why Tyler Staten says this. The most commonly known story in Peter's life is his denial of Jesus in his greatest moment of need. In a life filled with so much highlight in Peter's public denial, it's Peter's public denial, not his public heroism, that gave us the clearest revelation of the unconditional love of God. He goes on and says this, What we know most profoundly about God's love from the life of Peter did not come from Peter's triumph, but from his failure. You want to know why God used Peter in such a great way? It's not because Peter was better than all of you or me. It's not because Peter never failed. But the, the reason God used Peter in such an incredible way is because when Peter failed, rather than hiding in shame like Adam and Eve, he ran to Jesus. And as a result of that, he would later go on and he would write in 1 Peter 4.13, love covers a multitude of sins. Peter would have believed that for so long, but it wasn't until spiritually speaking he had fallen further than he could have ever imagined that he discovered that even in the places that we think God must hate us, he still loves us.
And as a result of his unconditional love, he continues to extend forgiveness and friendship to anyone who will simply receive it. To end this morning, I want you to think about the Japanese art form called kintsugi. I'm not sure if you've heard of that before. But this art form is basically where you take, and I think I can show you a picture of it on the screen. It's where you take something broken and you make it whole again by pouring gold into cracks. The artists who started this, they believe that when something suffers damage, it actually carries a history and a story that makes it more beautiful and actually more valuable than if it had never been damaged before. And so they take these broken things like you see in this picture and um, they turn broken stuff into beautiful stuff. And as I thought about that this week, I thought like, man, like that's the kind of artist God is. Like God is famous for pouring gold into the cracks of our lives in order to make us whole. Rather than discarding the broken pieces of our life that others call trash, he takes the parts of us that we think are ugly and unusable and he redeems it. Like a kintsugi artist, he takes broken vessels and makes them beautiful. And when you will reflect on this reality and if it will actually settle into your heart, more than it being a cute sermon illustration or being poetic, I'm telling you, it will be life-changing. To know that God is a good enough artist, a gracious enough artist, that his redemption runs deep enough and broad enough that he can repurpose even the parts of our story we wish would never have happened. And therefore, as a result, use even your failures in his grace to continue to build his kingdom so that other people can experience the grace that you too have received. With that, what I want to do as we end the day is I want to invite our, uh, those preparing communion to come forward, if you will, our band to come up. And we're going to focus on the grace of God by taking communion together. This is something we do every single week as a church. And if um, you're new here, and uh, just so you know kind of what's happening, as, as you can see, our servers are going to put on gloves, and um, they will help serve communion this way. They'll tear off a piece of bread, which represents the body of Christ, um, the, his perfect life lived for you. Um, they will then dip it in the juice, which represents his blood that was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And even if you're not a member of our church, you're welcome to come partake of this. If you don't feel comfortable taking communion this way, there's some disposable cups in the back. You can grab those and take communion that way. If you're not a Christian, uh, we would say rather than receiving this, receive Jesus. Receive the gospel. Receive the grace of God as it poured out for you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you want to talk about that, I'd be happy to connect with you up here at front. If you don't have someone else that, that can't answer those questions for you, help you with the next steps, be happy to help. And I'll Chris is here, Adam as well, and they'd be happy to process and pray with you. With that, let's stand together and uh, to prepare our hearts, let's pray. When you're ready, you can come and take communion and then we'll sing one final song together.